All right. Welcome, folks. Welcome back to Larger, Freer, More Loving. As always, I'm Matt Levine. I'm Dwight Lewis. And last time, we talked about Black masculinities with Tommy Curry and John Youngblood. We began by talking about the Black male experience, particularly in academia, as a means of defining Tommy's man not and the multiplicitousness of Black masculinities. Following that, we applied this knowledge as a critique of intersectionality, attempting to propel intersectionality toward new growth and understanding. And today, we've got three scholars that do fantastic research on counter-narratives and counter-histories in philosophy. John Harfosh, Mina Krishnamurti, and Peter K.J. Park. And we're really excited to have this conversation with y'all about non-Western, anti-Western, and other Western philosophers and philosophies. So we're just going to start out by having each one of you introduce yourselves, uh, starting with John, please. Uh, yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having, having me on this, uh, on this podcast. Uh, my name's John Harfouche. I'm from uh, University of Alabama, Huntsville. I'm an assistant professor down there, uh, down here. Um, uh, in 2018, uh, I had a book come out called Another Mind-Body Problem, uh, History of uh, history of racial non-being. It's a counter-history of the, of the, the of philosophy's mind-body problem. Um, and I'm a co-founder of, of the Society for Anti-Colonial Middle Eastern North African Thought. So, um, yeah, thanks. Awesome. Thanks very much, John. Mina. Oh, hi, I'm Mina Krishnamurthy. I'm an assistant professor at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Um, and I work in social and political philosophy. And these days I'm working on a book manuscript called uh, The Emotions of Nonviolence. And it's all about uh, Dr. King's uh, political thought. Awesome. Thanks very much, Mina. Peter. So, yeah, my name is Peter Park, Peter K.J. Park. Uh, my author's name, and thank you very much for having me on. This is a fantastic uh, podcast. Uh, you, Matt, and Dwight do excellent work. I'm uh, looking forward to uh, the other podcasts. I was just alerted that the one you did with Tommy Curry is uh, up already, so I'm going to check that out. I was associate professor at the University of Texas at Dallas, and Last year became emeritus. I took early emeritus so that I could restore balance to my life. And that would be uh, community engagement, family time, as well as teaching and research, uh, but more uh, proportionally uh, justifiable or sustainable. So um, I did something, I mean, we can talk about it uh, at any point uh, since it's kind of a different career trajectory, but um, yes, I did it. And luckily I had uh, something to do, which is just uh, return to uh, my family and we are involved in Korean folk medicine. So that's what, what I'm doing right now and hope to stay engaged in academic life, uh, but it, uh, more proportional or uh, so that it uh, doesn't uh, overwhelm the rest of life. So. I wrote a book in, uh, and it was published in 2013 and it's on uh, the rewriting of the history of philosophy and how uh, the rewriting resulted in a Eurocentric, racist and Greek centric uh, version of that history. And 
I will uh, be glad to talk about it and look forward to this talk. Back to you. Hey, there's Thank a you very much, Peter. Yes, and please, everybody should get this book. So in the introduction, we characterize you all as researchers of counter narratives or counter histories and philosophy. Now, um, this does already force us to begin unearthing what we mean by philosophy and standard narratives, right? So John, uh, starting with your book, and I actually, I was just literally on Zoom probably an hour ago with uh, Julie Walsh talking about your book, um, Another Mind-Body Problem, um, A History of Racial Non-Being. Um, in that text, you talk about counter-histories. What do you mean by counter-histories and where do counter-histories interact with philosophy? What do you mean by counter-histories and where do they interact with philosophy? Um. Well, different people, different people are certainly going to use this in different ways. And so I'm just speaking really for myself and how I've come to understand the, the, um, the strategy. Um, I mean, in a word, a counter history is where you're, you're, you're having to make a dollar out of 15 cents. Um, that's really, really what it comes down to. Um, it's effectively a reading strategy uh, where uh, the, the, the aim is to reinterpret historical narratives from which the core areas of this field draw, uh, from, from which the core areas of this field draw. And so philosophy defines itself in terms of certain debates that are organized around certain problems, and those problems claim to be inherited from from our history, from a certain understanding of our history. And so counter histories work to, uh, to destroy those narratives and to destroy the problems that they support. And um, in, effect, in effect, remake the core areas of this field. And what's really key, what's really uh, the, the key idea in a counter history is the kind of, the kind of double meaning of the word, of, of the word counter. Uh, when you're counter some, when you when you when you're when you're countering, you're you're against it. You're you're opposing it. Uh, certainly, a counter history opposes the assumptions and the mythologies around philosophies, uh, orthodox problems, and orthodox histories. But a counter history is also counter in the sense that uh, a counter history responds in kind. Our counter history responds through the same language, uh, working within those histories, uh, like in like in in um, like in boxing, right? A counter punch. You take a punch. Yeah, yeah. You don't respond with a kick. You don't respond with a, a a chair. You respond with a punch, right? You you you're you're in a way you're you're always in a counter history, you speak the same language and you work within the terms and the histories, the vocabularies recognized by the orthodox histories. And so philosophy, philosophy says, like Wilfred Sellers says, uh, a prominent philosopher says, um, that the mind-body problem, I can't remember exactly what he says, but it's like uh, the mind-body problem encompasses the philosophical project as a whole. Like that's, that basically, that's what this field boils down to. So the philosophers tell us that the mind-body problem is what's important. 
I also think the mind-body problem is what's most important in this field. The, the philosophers tell us that the mind-body problem goes back to Descartes. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to Descartes. I'm gonna read Descartes. I'm gonna talk about Descartes. That's what they wanna talk about, so I'm gonna talk about Descartes. Mm -hmm. um, they wanna talk about minds and bodies, I'm gonna talk about minds and bodies. But a, 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 a counter history uses that vocabulary, uses those, those resources, uses, uses that canon to accomplish goals that they weren't actually really made for. Um, and, and so um, it's a way to, it's a, it's, a, it's a strategy to be within a field or to be within a subfield without, without necessarily assimilating to its premises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 we, I have a question for you. Um, how, how do we then um, move from, move the needle also of the um of the of the field right so you say like uh, mind body problem is uh extremely important for western philosophy um so what you're going to do is respond by working within um how do, how do we actually get to a point where the counter history then pushes the needle away from being the mind body problem or the me or the are the or the needle being something else or should it or can it um, is I guess what I'm going to ask, right? Um, yeah, so how does counter history become the dominant? Become yeah, the dominant. yeah, yeah, yeah. Or how does it intertwine to such an extent where there is there isn't like the things that we're considering counter history now are no longer counter history, right? Um, and how do we get to that interweaving? Um, I have I I I, I, um, I mean if I in my um. I mean, in my experience with it, it's just a matter of, um, you know, continuing on the grind, continue to press your case. Um, you know, it's, um, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not really sure what, what to say beyond that. You know, right. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, maybe Peter wants to say, wants yeah. to. Um, yes. Well, <clears throat> I do have an an answer in addition to what John said. Uh, other philosophers, you know, other allies with the counter history have to pick up on the counter history. They have to also uh, uh, affirm that that is actually the documentable, okay, and mm -hmm. revealing history, uh, revealing counter history. So, um, and it has to become a, uh, conversation involving uh, many more thinkers than just John. So, and we're doing that right now mm -hmm. uh, by uh, discussing his work, his book mm -hmm. and his other work. So um, yeah, um, others have to uh, come around to it and uh, take a look and judge for themselves. But I think they will find that John has done good history of philosophy yeah, and it needs to be taught and those who are the more orthodox uh, in terms of their training right okay they might not be uh partial to the counter history but now they've been put in a situation where they have to follow up 
on John's claims in his book. Um, he's written a couple of related articles. They have to follow up. And, and that is how the counter history uh, stays in circulation and uh, possibly uh, be rival to the standard history, right? Which is exclusionary and also uh, blind towards the racial dimension of this history of philosophy, which John's book brought out. Yeah, 100%. There, you, there you are. Yeah, I think I have a little bit of a different perspective to offer. I think, um, you know, how to counter net narratives or, you know, become dominant or at least prevalent and long lasting. I think it has to go beyond the books. Like, I think it has to take, it has to hit the streets. So when we see um, a push for it, I agree completely with the idea, not only that these books have to be written, but they have to be taught. But where does the pressure come to teach these things? I think it's coming from students. I think student demands, students putting pressure, sometimes students, you know, standing outside and protesting, um, writing open letters, collecting signatures. I don't think that just having, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think this is what anyone is saying, but I think it's important to emphasize that it has to go beyond conversation. So often for these narratives to become dominant, there has to be a kind of pressure coming from somewhere, an outside force to push change. Yeah, so this is all really interesting here because, you know, I do something very similar, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm trained as an analytic philosopher. So I'm, I'm, I'm worried that when I'm creating counter histories within analytic philosophy, I've got this worry of, you know, geez, you know, I, I hear Audre Lorde in the back of my head all the time, about, you know, using, using the master's tools to bring down the master's house. Um, but, but as, and I worry about that, but, but, uh, you know, Peter and Mina here, you're, you're talking about part of what needs to happen for counter histories to make inroads is there have to be these allies picking up on the counter history and there has to be these students putting pressure. Um, so, so I guess I, I, I wonder about the tension here between working within and working from without. Um, and, and do any of y'all have thoughts on how, how to navigate those tensions? I'm intrigued. I mean, I, I, I would say that, um, I mean, I, I guess there's a lot to say about that. Um, there's certainly, uh, there's certainly a tradition that works from without, from the outside. Um, but there's also a long tradition that has worked from the inside. I'm hardly the first person to, um, to do something like this. In fact, um, when I when I wrote that book, um, Marie Matsuda's essay, um, "Looking to the Bottom," classic essay in critical race theory. Uh, you know, she talked about the project of critical race theory as as a project that um, that uh, um, I can't remember exactly how she says it, but it's like um, draw, draws transformative powers from ordinary discourse. And she highlights how this is what marginalized people have always done, is take what's given and transform it. She points to liberation theology in the United States. She points to Frederick Douglass's uh, sort of transformation of the meaning of the Constitution. Um, and so um, there's certainly uh, a, a 
certainly precedent for this. And there's also precedent for certain hesitations around uh, working from working from the outside. Yeah, yeah, and um, you could look, for instance, to uh, Sylvia Winter's essay, the No Humans Involved essay. She quotes Arthur Bradley there, who uh, talks about how minority studies or black studies was effectively made as a, a, a was a kind of preemptive project to basically um, prohibit black scholars from working in the core fields yeah. of the humanities. I think you could say that that's sometimes how the philosophy of race functions in this field. The entire non-white world is in this margin and the core areas continue on more or less unfazed by this. Uh, in Alcoff's essay, Philosophy Civil Wars, she has a footnote to Colin McGinn and Colin McGinn says something like, um, feminism is a robust field in philosophy now and that's a good thing. It, 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 it um, I can't remember exactly what he says. He says something like Fem feminism is a robust subfield in philosophy now, but it's had no effect whatsoever on the core areas of the field. Yeah, yeah. This is that for, for, for Colin again, you take that to be, that's a success. A feminism that is working in this field that has no effect on the core areas of the field is exactly exactly what they want <laughs> you know so i don't want to be uh i don't want to be a recognized margin in a field that is attempting to create its margins in order to protect its so-called core area yeah 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 so yeah. i i very much want to be i very much want to be in the core areas but i want the core areas to be to be destroyed and remade yeah 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 yeah, I think yeah, for me, yeah. I think I'm like a pluralist because I was thinking about this this sort of binary of working within and working without and standing in tension. I think a I don't I don't think I buy in buy into that categorization. I think we just need so much work on any front that's possible where anybody's willing to do the work. And if you're comfortable working within the mainstream and trying to bring like new thinkers and new questions, do that. On the other hand, if you feel comfortable working in a, in a discipline like women's studies or black studies that sits sort of uh, outside of philosophy, but I think is also done in a way that's actually quite different than philosophy in many ways. But if that's a place where you want to do your work, I think there's work to be done there. And I think, so for me, it's like, I don't, I would be reluctant to give like a all things considered this is the only way kind of response I think we need all these things and we just you know should just try to be like supporting each other in these different endeavors as we try to push for progress no uh, we definitely agree that the fight is multiplicitous and we need fighters on each on each front um, and we all can respond in different ways um, the thing I, I gathered from all of this uh, that I really enjoyed was that this is a communal push Right, that this is a push that doesn't happen from one person, one individual, but that it starts with everyone. And so at first I wanted to put this like um, kind of typology where it's like from scholars to teachers to students. And no, this is actually like a through way where students are doing what they're doing, scholars are doing what they're doing, activists are doing what they're doing. And we're hopefully like all pushing in different areas to then set up something for the next generation, right? Um, and so I, I really, I really, like I really enjoyed all of that. <laughs> I really did, it was awesome. Um, Mina, Mina, now we're coming to you. 
Right. Uh, we, we do a lot of we do a lot of research, of course, um, on counter histories, but on whiteness, justice, and on MLK. How does your understanding of power create a counter history, um, and where does counter history play in relationship to power? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question to think about the role of power. So I'll say maybe a little bit about how I got into the work with King. So a lot of people like me who are trained in analytic departments hear a really standard story about political philosophy, which is like, okay, it's like people were writing about political philosophy, then John Stuart Mill wrote on utilitarianism, and then political philosophy stopped until the <laughs> 70s, where John Rawls wrote A Theory of Justice. And sadly, like in the beginning of my career, just at, you know, out of grad school, I told that same story. So there's the narrative I was pushing, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. So there's the narrative I was pushing as I was teaching my first classes in social and political philosophy. Um, and then I, uh, well, actually, it's just like a, I had a really severe head injury, and I didn't know if I was going to come back to philosophy or not. And I didn't know if I was ever really going to be able to read or write again. And so I figured I would at least try to read the things I always wanted to read. And so I read a bunch of Indian political thought, like Gandhi and Gandhi's critics. Um, and then I wanted to look at some modern interpreters of Gandhi, so that took me to King. Um, and then I realized, wait a second, to understand King, now I had to go back and read Douglas and Booker T. Washington and Du Bois and Garvey, and, you know, and then it expanded. Um, and then I realized, wait a second, this narrative that I've been selling to my students and been told for years is patently false. So part of the <laughs> right. So how did I and I was lucky enough to recover from my head injury and to be able to return to work after a couple of years of not teaching um, and not really writing. So, um, but due to that sort of situation, and, and maybe this is what you know, maybe is why important. It's important to have some time for leisure so you can have these expansive projects that you wouldn't you wouldn't always um, be doing otherwise. Um, not that I was taking like a vacation because I had a head injury, but in some sense I was doing things I wouldn't normally be able to do, um, and. So, so my own like, intellectual journey is that I discovered this history that I had never heard about through my analytic training and then kind of been, you know, became committed to discovering King. So that's the kind of counter narrative that I've been interested in. But then once I started reading all the literature on King, I also realized, uh-oh, this is, you know, there's a, there's a certain bend that people want to take on King, which is that he's all about love and faith yeah. and not violence. Um, and uh, a lot of the work that I've been trying to do is to try to undo that narrative. You know, yeah. part of the, the work that I'm trying to do is suggest that, you know, emotions, negative emotions like distrust, indignation, um, you know, are really important to understanding King and to challenging partly because of the role they play in spurring people to challenge systems of power. And so these negative, what we might call negative emotions are often powerful and then can be used to, uh, at least I argue, to sort of challenge tyrannical structures of white power. Um, so there's kind of these two levels of the counter narrative. One is the one in political philosophy, but the other is just about understanding King and, and who he actually is and what he argued for. Um, and to that end, I just like published a piece in Jacobin sort of suggesting that King had a very nuanced view on riots and nonviolence and looting. And I sort of have suggested, for example, that looting might actually be permissible for him because it's not um, directed at violence directed at people. He believes there's a strong moral prohibition against violence right. against people, but maybe not institutions, maybe not property. Um, but these are things that we don't normally think of when we think about King. So. Yeah. so that's interesting because I'm literally sitting here thinking about it and I think that you're right. He would be okay with um, institutional property, but not so much personal property. Um, yo, that is um, very intriguing. Um, 
that is that is uh yeah 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 I, i'm already you got my wheels turning on this uh in, in, on this um on this looting yeah yeah now i'm gonna have to go read this article that i haven't read yet right. <laughs> well no i mean i i was interested in this too i mean just yesterday i was teaching letter from a birmingham jail with my students and they're amazed to see king even making an argument that we are obligated to disobey unjust Right? I mean, this is already um, a, a counter to the standard uh, narrative we give of King's work. Um, so yeah, I guess I, I'm, I'm selfishly intrigued. Are you willing to tell us more about this piece, Mina? Yeah, I mean, so the piece, like the first piece that I published on King was about the role of distrust. And it's actually about how distrust comes up in the letter from Birmingham jail. So one of the common things I've been arguing is that one of the first things you see when you read this letter is that there's a deep distrust of the white moderates. So I had hoped that you were going to live up to these shared commitments that you keep telling me that you have and that you share it, and then you keep failing. So in a way, there's a kind of call to action, not only to the white moderates, but on my own book project is really thinking about what King is saying to his black audience, but it's a call to arms, right, or a call to action, rather, um, maybe moral arms, but, you know, to, to take to the streets and to put pressure on the white moderates and, 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 you know, people sitting in positions of power. And distrust is like, you know, I think a core part of the letter from Birmingham jail, which I think people don't really, really kind of see that that's coming up there. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. I um I can't wait to read this article. I'm really looking forward to it. I really am. Yeah, thanks. So uh, we've we've talked a little bit about uh, uh, some of John's work. We've talked a little bit about some of Mina's work. Uh, so Peter, um, I want to turn to uh, your book, Africa, Asia, and the History of Philosophy: Racism and the Formation of the Philosophical Canon, 1780 to 1830, um, where you point out that these counter histories that folks like you, Mina, and John work on are not actually challenging this age-old, millennia-old story, this, this excessively white, excessively European, excessively Eurocentric history of philosophy is actually relatively new. Um, so could you tell us a bit of uh, the genesis of that and some of the work you've done there, please? Definitely. So yeah, in my book, um, I do historically investigate uh, the origins of the excessively white and Eurocentric version of the history of philosophy. And actually it, it, it is the history of science and uh, yes. thought of any value. Mm -hmm. So, um, but taking a kind of uh, philosophy focus of it uh, for the uh, to keep it uh, more uh, streamlined, is that uh, by the late 18th century and uh, because I was able to do histor historians research, I can even get specific, by the 1780s, there's a change in the way that uh, philosophers and also historians of philosophy mm -hmm. are r writing an account of their own discipline. Um, what is philosophy, which has to occur as the topic of every uh, lower division course in philosophy at some point or another, the way that that question of what philosophy is, is often answered is through recounting 
the history of the thing. So there's a role here, an uh, important role of uh, the history of philosophy in philosophy pedagogy. And all of you can see this instantly, so I'll stop right there. The older histories, the older histories uh, recounted the uh, beginnings of philosophy in either Egypt or somewhere in Western Asia. Could be Phoenicia, could be Babylon. And then there were variations on this Eastern origin of philosophy. Some thought that India was a precise beginning, a geographical beginning. And of course, there were some uh, partisans for uh, Chinese origins. So now, all of these histories are simply based on what Europeans have as historical sources. And what they did is they simply read Greeks and Roman, ancient Greeks and Romans saying that philosophy originated in the East. And they said that philosophy originated in Egypt. So that is what is in the histories of philosophy uh, for in the modern period, but just until 1800, a little after 1800. Uh, change takes a couple of de decades. So uh, that's, and why the change? Yeah. Why the change? The, well, you know, um, uh, there are a couple of ways to uh, explain the change, but uh, one is to look at uh, the sources, the change in information available to uh, philosophers. And they are now starting to draw a lot on information coming in from the world outside of Europe. And so we're talking about sources by European observers traveling and doing their colonial activity in other parts of the world. So we're talking about sources that are uh, uh, racial descriptions of other people, racial cultural descriptions of other people, eth ethnography. There is also uh, medical treatises based on medical experiments done on non-European bodies as well as European bodies comparatively. They also drew on publications that were part of the abolitionist debate, pro and anti-slavery tracts. These sources also contained information on the non-European peoples, right? Obviously, uh, peoples of African descent. So these sources are now being used. And so basically everyone is needing to update all the philosophers in Europe are needing to update their anthropological ideas to the latest, the latest trend, okay, or the most up-to-date information concerning questions of, concerning anthropological questions. And they're draw, drawing from basically uh, writings. Uh, uh, there's plenty of publications, right? Because we have print technology. Writings that are uh, colonial in nature and that uh, purport to reveal something about human nature through the 
new or nascent science of anthropology. So there's a big influence from racial anthropology on all European intellectual life right now. And that anthropology is only possible because of European colonial expansion and the transatlantic slave trade, where a lot of anthropological knowledge is being created. And of course, transatlantic slave trade involves at least three different races okay, that we're talking about making observations of. So um, that version of the change is not so much highlighted in my book, but if I had a follow-up, it would be to uh, bring out the colonial context of the rewriting of the history of philosophy so that it became Eurocentric. It was clear already by around 1800 to the historians of philosophy that philosophy originated in Greece because philosophy to them is part of white civilization. There you go. It's really good, it's really good. So this is right away, I've got to, uh, like, I'm gonna say one thought and then I'm gonna bring in John and Peter because I think that there's a connection here, except, especially with 1780s um, and, and John, the third chapter of your book. Um, but one of the things I was thinking about too in relationship to why this particular change um, is in Europe, right? We see this big move that's happening, especially all throughout Europe in, um, in the 18th century is this move to the common people, philosophers, educators, academics writing in the common tongue, right? And so common people are not able to read. Common people are not able to be educated. And so if you allow yourself to say that the best of you comes from, like if the academics are saying the best doesn't come from within, that it actually can break down hierarchy in relationship to purpose, in relationship to something like John's book, or in relationship to nationality. And so it's actually gonna push on this narrative of placing yourself hierarchical at a higher level, especially in relationship to the to taxonomies, right? Um, especially in relationship to um, ethnography, right? It, it then doesn't allow you to take this position of superiority um, that like, that allows you to then say, I am better than this other person. If the common people don't believe it, then it's like, you're really screwed. The academics can, can, the academics can have these like broad minds, but when the common people also think like that, that's when your country is in a little bit of disarray, I think. Um, but I wanna start there to really zoom in on hierarchies and on, um, and on purpose in relationship to Kant, right? Um, so John's third chapter of his book really talks about Kant in the way that the mind-body problem plays out, um, especially how Kant likes to, Kant has, um, has a racialism that takes place but that runs alongside um, uh, de defining cultures in particular ways, right? Based on their inherent purpose um, in, the, in, in the world, right? And so I'm wondering how you might think or how you, how John, you might think your work might connect with John's here at this, at this movement of changing this, this question of changing our answer to this question of what is philosophy at the end of the 1780s when Kant is doing his work, when we, we're really starting to see the shift towards scientific racism, we're really trying to, starting to see a real shift in the way that hierarchy is seen 
Um, I'm just wondering if you have anything to add into why, uh, uh, what it, why this answer changes um, around the same time. I know I threw a lot at you there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I agree with what Peter, with what Peter says. I mean, certainly, um, depending on what you're looking at or where you're looking in the world, there, there are going to be different contexts and different influences and different, um, different determining factors. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, 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 I, I just would add um, that in a, in a few different ways, um, there's a, uh, there's an, there's an economics to the whole thing, of course, you know, um, um, you know, if you, if you, if you just look ahead a few decades to the, to the mid uh, 19th century, you know, Said Said tells us in Orientalism that when European countries invaded and occupied, colonized the Middle East and North Africa, they brought with them uh, the Orientalists. They brought academics with them. Napoleon III brings Ernst Renan with him in, in order to basically write a theory of who the Arabs are yeah. and why they should be occupied. And so um, that's why Sayyid always says that, that there, there, isn't, there is a kind of ideology that runs out ahead of the, the practice, the, these practices. Um, and um, what, what Kant, what I would say, what Kant is writing, a, um, Kant is writing a philosophy, um, a, a, a theory, uh, an ideology around the worthlessness of the non-white world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, it, 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 in, in that, in that worthlessness, uh, their lives and deaths are really of, of total insignificance. Um, and, and that's really, I mean, Kant, Kant always goes in on the Fuegians, right? If you, if you know, if you teach Kant, you can't teach Kant's ethics without him saying something about Fuegians at some point or another. Um, and, you know, a few decades after Kant writes, writes that stuff, um, the Selknam genocide will really decimate the Fuegians. Um, and so there, there, is a, um, there is a certain, there is a concrete violence and a, a concrete occupation of resources, a, a concrete colonial apparatus that is always hand in hand, even if Kant isn't as, 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 uh, as intimate with the with the occupations in the way that Said shows us how the Orientalists were, um, but there is a, there is a concrete violence that often or almost always follows um, with these um, with with these theories. They're they're much more than just theories. Theories, yeah, 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 yeah. The purpose there's a there's a purpose for why they're being written, and um, there's a uh, th there are concrete outcomes to it. And, and they can be interpreted different ways, as I'm sure Peter knows better than I do. There are lots of disagreements about how to interpret these travelogues. Uh, there are reading groups around Europe. I think I remember reading somewhere that the second most popular form of literature in this period in Europe were the travelogues. Um, so, so lots of people are reading these books and lots of people, they're, they're interpreted in many different ways. Um, it's just we consistently uh, 
fall in love with the with the most evil interpretations of them uh, you know, not among them so no it makes it, I, right away i'm thinking about the ways that power can't at least it makes me think that power can't just be an ideology but that power actually is an action um and you've got to you've got to actually implement um that superiority over over other peoples um with that being said it brings me back to to mina to ask you a question about this exact thing <laughs> Um, how do we go about combating white tyranny and educating uh, white ignorance? Or really, right, um, whose job is it to educate white ignorance? Uh, yeah, there's a lot there in those questions. Yeah. And I think they're questions <laughs> I think about all the time. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, so I mean, I think I think there, there have obviously been different waves of thought and we're seeing some of them resurface now. So one view is what we need to convey is a certain kind of propositional knowledge. We just need to give people facts. So look at the new interest in white fragility and how to be an anti-racist in a way. It's like we want these like facts about how what racism is, how it works. And there are obviously some people who think that's enough to make things change. Um, then the backlash right to that narrative uh, in turn has been that doesn't seem like that's going to be enough. We have to draw attention to, you know, not only that, not only just factual knowledge, um, but to something else. And I think that's a debate you see in black political thought all throughout, right? Everybody from Douglas to Du Bois to, you know, people that come later like um, Malcolm and, and Martin um, are having these same the same conversations, like, you know, and, and we see Du Bois give different answers at different times, right? In the beginning, he's like, moral education is the way. Later, he's like, moral education didn't work. Everybody knows slavery and racism are wrong, and yet they're not doing anything about it. Ida B. Wells gets all her facts about lynching out there. Nothing happens. I actually think of Ida B. Wells as a case in point, and did this amazing work and distributed it didn't she put you know she suggested various policy proposals they were never taken up right anti-lynching um, proposals so to me um you know that isn't enough which is partly what's drawn me to think more about um work in sort of black aesthetics thinking about the role of poetry um photography and in visual images in particular and the role they might play in educating people so i think we need those facts but then we need maybe we need more than that and maybe literary art and other forms of art are ways to get there and if that then i'm going to go back to the answer i gave before, which is that, you know, we also need a social movement to put pressure on people. Um, yeah, so I think it might be a, again, I'm likely to say that it's a combination of all of these things together. No, that's... So I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm stepping in, but does anyone else have any anything else that they want to add to combating white tyranny? Um, just throwing it out there. Well, I, I would, I would just add, I would just add that, um, um, you know, the kind of work that Mina's doing, I think, is really essential um, because um, at a certain point, there is, I think, especially, I hate saying this, but um, cer certainly today, uh, there is a need to kind of strategize actual actions. Um, and it's it's not clear that the university is the place to do this yeah, yeah. Um, i'll just throw this out i mean it's just i don't know how much we really want to get into this but um you know the university continues and certainly the humanities and the liberal arts continue to become more and more more a branch of the american military at least in the united states in terms of how our funding happens and what we talk what we end up talking about 
uh, even the liberal arts is increasingly infected with this kind of, um, uh, you know, this, this, this development of subfields that are part of this quote unquote national security apparatus. And I think that um, why Mina's work is interesting and why it's important is because it draws, it draws from thinkers outside the university system. And um, one thing that I think that really helps the conversation is to look back at movements around the world that have been successful, um, whether that's in Vietnam or in South Lebanon, um, we, should, we should consider reading and teaching uh, works by, by authors that have had some success in combating colonialism and seeing what are the what are the terms of their what are the terms of their uh, of their thinking what are the parameters of their actions what were they doing um, I, I think that's I think that's important to to um, to to emphasize that that it's probably not us that's coming up with this probably probably we should be listening to people that have already done things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's a really helpful way of putting it. And I think what's interesting, at least from my own like work in this, is that it's actually been philosophically really important too, because I think the way that I often now think about King as someone who read a lot of philosophy is that he was taking theories, for example, like about say the sentiments or about empathy in particular, that seemed in some sense there were all these tensions about empathy, how efficacious it were, what kind of barriers there might be. Um, but then testing, you know, that on the ground, here's some things that might work, if it doesn't work, how do we revise? And so one of the things I've been trying to sort of suggest is that we can see these people as kind of like philosopher activists who are not just testing their theories on paper but doing it in lived experience and on the ground and I think as philosophers um, it's a, it's like an exciting area to be studying because I think there are lots of philosophical lessons that we can draw also from looking at them but I, I think um, John is absolutely right that if we're thinking strategically we definitely need to look outside the university setting um, for lots of for lots of reasons I don't know that we want to necessarily want to talk about them now but but I think that's a really key point so I mean, you, you've you've both talked here about uh, not necessarily wanting to talk about this more, uh, but this is something that I'm certainly intrigued in talking about more, because uh, Dwight and I are always talking about how academia is either way too detached in a world with so many terrible things going on, or is either completely lockstep with these colonial and genocidal practices that are happening around the world. Um, so, so no, uh, uh, if you do have more things to say about how those of us working in academia can be, can be doing something to bear on this extremely unjust and oppressive reality surrounding us, I would, I would love to hear more thoughts on that, please. So for me, interestingly enough, these questions often relate back to something we were talking about before we started recording, which is thinking a bit about tenure and its requirements. So I sometimes think that junior faculty are the ones that are most connected to students and are probably in the best position to actually advocate for change because they do a lot of that labor with students, but are also because of the constraints around tenure, least in a position to do, do that work. And often when we do do that work, I can say this in experience, we're told not to, especially depending on what institution. Don't do that. Like, don't waste your time doing all this diversity work or all this mentoring or, you know, blah, 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 because that's not going to count for tenure. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's a certain way, and I'm, I'm sure that everyone else, else has lots of things to say about this as well, that the whole process of tenure, especially in the United States, because it really doesn't necessarily work like this in other places, is structured to keep us so busy and to feel like there's a gun to our head the whole time. There's no time to do all these other things. You're just trying to survive and keep your job. I mean, honestly, that's how I felt the entire time I was in the United States, which is in part <laughs> why I'm not in the United States anymore. But I think I have like a, a bit of a different perspective because now I'm here in Canada and I don't feel like anyone's holding a gun to my head. I feel secure about my job. I feel like my chances of tenure I'm going up, you know, in the spring are, are good. Um, so I'm not, I don't feel worried. And if you're not worrying, I have more time to engage and connect with grassroots organizations in Kingston uh, to be involved with people who are working in anti-incarceral movements. And it's not to say I wasn't doing that work before, but it, I have more time for it and I can dedicate myself in a bit of a different way. So I do think some of these things are, are like about tenure uh, and, and are also connected to these, these, these issues. 100%, 100%. Go ahead, Peter, go ahead, Peter. Um, yes, I, I think that uh, tenure is really a drag in terms of community engagement, all the ways that Mina explained the problems of tenure. We want, we want you to get the tenure. So we want you to be successful there, but um, um, I understand from my own examples of the constraints of the tenure track in terms of our I, I shared ideals. Um, I keep on <clears throat> using the term community engagement that really captures it for me about uh, how we ought to dispose more of our time as academics and uh, university personnel. So then um, given tenure, uh, possibly the time to uh, bust a new move is after attainment of tenure, right? After uh, you're in a secure employment situation and maybe not before, right? This is so, this is the ugliness of uh, the, the U.S. university or uh, tenure system. So that's one thought uh, to really break it down into something really basic. So uh, strike out on a new direct, in, in a new direction after uh, you are secure in your uh, academic position and also established and get everything done that you want to get done, like, you know, publish the thing you want to publish. Uh, also, also, um, so that was concrete, but uh, in terms of, um, you know, general, uh, uh, general direction, we, we have to find more creative ways to uh, be socially engaged. Um, we have to not look at academic models. This is what Mina and Don already said. We have to look at people already, so to speak, on the ground, you know, the activists and all the, the ones who do much better job of connecting political implications, motivations, and consequences with with academic work or intellectual work, you know, who does a great job of making the two connect journalists. So, and they're right there yeah. in front of us. Yeah, They're right there in front of us. I think we could take a lesson or two from them. So mm-hmm. lots of creative. Another thing is, I mean, if your forte is fundraising, it might be, uh, you know, draw drawing or concentrating funds to get something done. Okay. Or if, your talent is in administration. So really, we really need creative ways to 
uh, stay more uh, engaged and also pursue the ideals we hold for philosophy and this academic life. I mean, you see, okay, so those are all generalities. Uh, what concrete thing can I tell you? I mean, it would be, it would be totally making time to think outside of the tenure track. Okay, so that would be the, the flavor of it, but, but every, each, each in their own situation will find the creative path forward to, okay, so now that's in competition with the scholarly, the academic work that will get you the tenure and the promote. We want, we want you to promote also after the tenure, promote again. So, okay, but uh, concrete ideas, uh, I'm gonna be not as uh, uh, rich in supplying them uh, as Mina would be because of who her subjects are. And so, yeah, I'll stop right there. Anyone else? So I'm really intrigued by this, by uh, what both, both of you had to say, um, because, you know, I'm just starting a tenure track job. I'm at the very cusp of it. Um, baby, 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 junior scholar. Um, and, you know, even at like the fun fundamental level, it's like, what I'm doing right now, like this podcast counts, doesn't, doesn't, is not going to help me make a tenure track case, right? Um, if I don't have enough publications, um, then there's no way that I'm going to get that tenure. Um, and I'm doing something that's very community, hopefully, I feel like it's very community, community engagement, something that is creative using a social model, something that does take more of a gener uh, uh, journalist lens, right? Um, something that is making time outside of tenure. And all of those things are things that they're like, look at, and they push it to the side. I even had a meeting with my, um, with, uh, what the, I'm doing that. I even, had a with my, I even had a meeting with my chair, right? Um, and he's showing me the list of things that they, that they like give you a mark in relationship to telling you how you're doing that first year, right? And I'm looking at the list and I'm like, well, my, like, I do a podcast, would I count on this list, right? Um, and he was like, well, that's something I guess we'll have to add. And it's good that we have someone that's willing to add that stuff, hopefully, right? Um, but then that also then has to go through a review process, right? And now they have to go and take this to um, the faculty meeting and all the faculty members have to then vote on the fact that this is getting changed to then amend this all for little old me, right? Um, and so I'm hoping that it continues to go through, but that still isn't, it's just, that's just a year review. That's not gonna add in or have any bearings when I go up to, when my, when my tenure, my tenure packet goes to the dean, right? And he's like, hmm, one less publication than we really wanted, but he's got a podcast. You know, he's had some, some uh, he, he's got 50 episodes. You know, the thing is that 2,000, 7,000 people are listening to it, but it's not going to be the thing that they're going to be like, nah, well, we're going to keep them now. Right. <laughs> and so that's why I'm like really struck. I, I'm like, I'm at a point where, like now I'm giving you a little bit of my anxiety. You could probably hear it in my voice because I'm at a point now where I'm 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 very close to um to yeah to walk, like this is what's gonna lead me to walk away, right? Um, this is it. Um, where I am giving so much energy, um, and if I walked away, I could walk into a job where I was making twenty I was making twenty to thirty thousand dollars more um, in three months. 
and having a nine to five, right? Um, and, and not have to be like, am I gonna get tenure? Like, am I gonna, can I still engage with the community? Um, and so I'm really, and I think it's like, this is, this is also why people like me are not staying here. Yeah. And then also why we can't get that group that we were talking about at the very beginning in relationship to counter histories to actually make the counter history happen, right? And shift the needle because it's like this stuff is like community engagement stuff is not valued in the, in the, in the university. And so I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm like literally laying my, <laughs> laying my chest out on the table. Um, and like, maybe no, if anyone has anything to say in response, I literally have I think no I have too much to say in response. First, I want to say, I really feel you. I really feel the struggle. I think there have been a million times in my career that I thought about leaving and doing something else, especially as like a political philosopher who was doing really policy centric work. That was always an option, right? So there was always this exit option to do these other things. And I think I'm sure that all of you have other things that you would be able to do as well. And so, um, I think that question comes up for all of us time and time again. And I think um, I think doing what you're already doing in the sense of getting things documented, pushing for changes in the process and what's gonna count is so, so, so smart. Not only because it's good for you, but hopefully the next person coming after you, that's gonna make a bit of a difference. And I think the other thing like, is that we have to have a discipline-wide, well, you know, academia-wide conversation about tenure and what really matters for tenure. And why do we care about tenure in the first place? And for me, I mean, it's a little bit different again because I'm in Canada and all of our institutions are public. And so all of us see ourselves as having a mandate to serve the public. So when I write for the public, it does count towards tenure here. If I was doing a podcast, uh, you know, on the blog that I edited Philosopher for five years, all of that will absolutely count towards my, my tenure file because I'm at a public institution and I'm serving the public. That's part of my mandated duty. Um, so I do think, you know, the, it depends on, on what institution and where you are at, but I do think, it, but even if, even if you aren't at a public institution, why don't we see this as an important part of tenure or at least one path for some people that think this is important to the kind of work they're doing. Um, I think that's a conversation we have to have, especially as we keep talking about diversifying the profession. What are we trying to do uh, when we're trying to diversify? It's to bring different ways of not only thinking, but ways of carrying out the practice of philosophy, which for many of us might be doing philosophy on the streets with actual people, uh, let alone policymakers or whoever, right? So I think my hope is that like we're gonna we are seeing i think a, a like a, a renaissance of public philosophy i think we're seeing more public philosophy being published than we have in a very very long time um and i don't think people are looking at it sidely i remember sort of when i was in grad school people would look at people who did public philosophy with like they're not a real philosopher though mm -hmm. um i think that's starting to go away so i think given the fact that all of us listen to your podcast and many others like the fact that it's well received and is doing you know having these important conversations um I think more and more people are going to start thinking that that's important work that needs to be done. And it's essentially unpaid, it's unpaid labor that you're doing. But at least I think many, I, if I was your letter writer, I would definitely be happy to say <laughs> that I think this should count towards your file. So I think, you know, you should also think thing like strategically about your letter writers, but we can talk about you know, later. But I, so I think everyone should be thinking in this way. So, I mean, I could go on unendingly because I think about these things like maybe way too much, but I think I'll stop there and let like, other people jump in. I mean, I, I just would say, um, I agree with what everyone has said, but I also think it's important to just add that um, um, really just a, just a couple things. There certainly is a lot of things to say about these kinds of questions, but 
Um, I think it's important to consider that um, tenure may not be what it's, what it's necessarily supposed to be. I think the Steven Salida case teaches us that um, tenure doesn't necessarily protect you. There isn't necessarily such a thing as tenure. And so I, I'm not sure I agree with this idea that you can um, uh, sort of be moderate through your uh, probationary period. And then once you become tenured, you're then allowed to do what you want. In fact, so rarely do we see anyone actually follow that model. Um, it's talked about, but I, 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 find, I find people that behave themselves and were careerist at the beginning of their careers often stay that way or, or become more invested in that because the pressures only become uh, uh, more intense, more people rely on you, the pay becomes higher, the stakes become higher. Um, and um, I, I think, I think that, um, I, I think it's, it, it's not necessarily, um, it's not necessary. I mean, everybody's case is different, but I don't think it's necessarily, um, crucial to operate that way. I don't, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that tenure is going to give us the protections that we hope. If you have a blueprint to destroy the American empire, they're not going to say, oh, well, she's tenured. They're going to assassinate <laughs> you. And so, um, you know, I think you, I think you have to, you have to consider what it is you're trying to accomplish. And, um, you know, just a second point, um, you know, since Peter's on this podcast, I have such, I, I, Peter's works has such an effect on my own work. Um, you know, before Peter's book came out, the best reference we had for understanding what this field was, was Leonard Harris's essay, the 1995 essay, believe it or not. Harris told us in that essay that this thing called professional academic philosophy kind of looks like, a, look, kind of looks like a branch of the Ku Klux Klan, kind of functions as a branch of the Ku Klux Klan. The hires like the Ku Klux Klan would hire, the talks like the Ku Klux Klan would hire. It may not be an, an actual, there may not be an actual cause and effect relationship between professional academic philosophy or he looks, he's talking about American philosophy, but you can certainly extend it. Um, there would be an actual cause and effect relation, but it's, this field certainly looks like it's in line with the wishes of the Ku Klux Klan. And I think that young people should ask themselves how badly they want to be tenured by the Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure, I'm not, I, I mean, I have things that I want to say and I'm, I'm going to write them in, in, in my books. And if at the end of the day, the Ku Klux Klan doesn't want to hear it, then I'm, I mean, I, I can stand on my own two feet. And I think everybody, everybody, um, um, everybody here has said that in their own way, that they'll just go into another field. But right. uh, I mean, the fact that philosophy is an institution among any other institution in a racist society. And so if we're going to, if we're going to destroy or remake a racist society, then philosophy has to be part of that struggle. And so there is certain, there is reason to be within this field. There's reason to be strategic about how you proceed. But I think you should always be realistic about how much the university is going to protect you given what it is you actually want at the end of the day. Um, philosophy is not going to protect and celebrate 
um, you know, m movements that destabilize its its foundations. I mean, I mean, to say it another way, it's crazy to think that anti-racism in the United States of America in the early 21st century is somehow going to be good for your career. That's insane. Anti-racism it will be bad for your career. There's that, that's it's hard to it's hard to imagine it otherwise. If it's somehow good for your career, then great. But it's hard to imagine that it that it would be a pathway to success in what we all know is the white supremacist society. Yeah, I was thinking. I think that's a really great uh, way to frame frame the question because I think if we think of the university as an institution, a white supremacist institution, which it certainly is, um, it habituates in us all the kinds of characteristics, right, and tendencies that would actually work to re-entrench white supremacy. So of course there's no time to engage in com with communities because that would actually challenge the white supremacist you know, institution that is the university. Um, and I really do think that engaging in resistance is a cultivated practice. It's something that takes years and time and failure and mistakes and many more tries um, to be successful. And so I think everything about the university in many ways in the United States in particular undoes our abilities to, to engage in that kind of moral practice that's needed to engage in resistance. And it just habituates these, these things are actually the exact opposite of that. So we can be these cogs uh, in this capitalist, uh, white supremacist, heteropatriarchal institution. Yeah, so that's, that's really interesting here, right? So, so we've been talking about, about, you know, needing new models uh, uh, for doing philosophy to cultivate this resistance. We've been talking about needing ways to encourage public philosophy, to look to activists, to bring in other modes of expression and, and, and response to the world, um, which really, uh, Mina, reminds me of one of my favorite works of yours, uh, Making Pictures, Making Racial Progress, which I think really uh, sets us up to do these things. Uh, so, so in that piece, you know, you you talk about how uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and Mamie Till Mobley used images during the civil rights movement uh, to overcome some of these, these limitations that we're talking about, especially with respect to empathy. Um, so I'm wondering, could you tell us a bit more about that, please, and, and, and how you think or whether you think it helps us understand something about the current racial context we find ourselves in today with uh, the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Daniel Prude, um, yeah. Right, so um, I think one of the things I've been trying to argue and to think more about is the role of empathy and the way that photographs and images can be used to stimulate empathy. If we think that empathy is effective in moving people to engage in political action, to overcome white supremacy, but other forms of injustice. And obviously there's been a long standing debate about the efficacy of, of empathy. And I think for me, I've read a lot of the literature, the empirical literature, but the sort of history of philosophy literature on, on uh, sympathy as it's called historically. And you know, there are these debates that I think didn't really give me sort of satisfying answers. But then, then I looked at the civil rights movement and thought, looked at how people were actually thinking about cultivating empathy. And I think the, the example that so often stands out for most people are the images of Emmett Till and Emmett Till's lynching. Um, so his mother made a concrete decision to distribute those images um, and in part. And she talks about the language of looking and empathizing and imagining themselves in the place that she was as a mother looking upon the brutalized body of her son. 
Um, and the images themselves, I mean, are meant to evoke empathy, a sense of, you know, you know, what it was like, in a sense, to suffer from this great injustice. Now, the problem with empathy is we can look at these images and not everybody's going to have the same reaction, right? There are a bunch of white folk from the South who said, oh, he got what he deserved. Black boys shouldn't be doing that sort of thing, which, you know, later it was, it became, you know, um, the woman confessed that he didn't do anything at all, in fact. But the point is people can look at these images and interpret them differently. So looking more closely at the details of these images and how they are distributed, the images themselves, I mean, some of the images that were in the Life magazine spread, if you notice, were not just the images of Till, they were images of the actual funeral with his mother standing in front of the coffin. And on the coffin were images of what Till looked like as a boy. Um, so that image in itself already, and you actually then see other images of the broader Black community, thousands of people attending the funeral. Now, one thing that it's trying to do here is not even, not just to evoke a sense of empathy, but to show there's a group of people that were impacted. At first, there's like the innocence of Emmett Till, the mother. Of course, you know, many women may start to empathize, but it's just brought the impact of the broader community. Um, and the fact that then, you know, Mamie Till herself, you know, travels to various rallies in the country and gives a story and talks about it and links it to the broader systems of racial injustice um, and the policing of black bodies that were happening during Jim Crow, she gives a kind of narrative, a counter narrative, we might want to say, you know, in the frame of what we've been talking about to challenge the dominant ideology of white supremacy. Um, and so the images play this really important, this piece to signal empathy, but you have to draw everybody's eyes to sort of the structural context of the injustice, um, you know, that happened in the first place. And so the goal is not only to get people to empathize, but to see that what's happening and how terrible it is, is a great harm, but it's a, a deep injustice that has to be remedied. So the hope is that in doing some of those things, we're already starting to channel people's attention to the structural injustice that needs to be remedied. It isn't just, you know, one person, but many people who are, you know, at risk of suffering the same fate as Emmett Till. Um, and so I think those images were powerful because they managed to do so many things. Um, even the images themselves are so powerful in the fact that they call our attention to the structural causes of, of this individual victimization. Uh, that's exactly what we need is an attunement, something that grabs us and actually allows us to uh, place ourselves in that position. Um, we see, yeah, I, um, I struggle with Emmett Till probably uh, uh, a little bit more than some, not most, but some people, um, because I imagine, you know, someone like my mom having to deal with that. Um, and um, if only other mothers um, could imagine um, their sons and daughters um, and children having to deal with the same thing. Um, uh, I think we would be a much better space. Like I was saying, if we had that empathy to do that, uh, we'd be in a much better space. Um, I want to I wanna ask one last question that has to do with images, um, especially in relationship to um, Blackness and all other marginalized peoples, um, and also in relationship to philosophy. So we see right now, you know, um, if you're looking for a job in philosophy right now, you're really coming across one posting. Um, and the posting is, and I'm going to call the name of the school out because it is what it is. We all know what it is, University of Chicago. Um, right. My question for you guys, if you've read this posting, is how is this job posting not a counter history? Um, or is it a counter history? Um, or does, it, or does it lead us to focusing on the normative origins of philosophy, which would be a counter history to Peters, right? 
um, does his job post uh, present as something that's a counter history or not, right? Um, and that's the, I guess the, um, the question I'm try really trying to get, get at. You know, we're looking at, at least I'm looking at these job posts all over the place um, over the last three years. Um, and it still looks, it does look normative to a lot of these job posts. But the real question I'm getting at is not just UC, right? We're actually talking about all of these job posts. Are they counter histories? The ways that they are trying to acquire diversity, is that a counter history, um, right? Well, to, to start off, um, <clears throat> I think the, the ad looks more inclusive. <laughs> Okay, um, you know, there's like a separate uh, call out for African-American philosophy, that's great. And um, uh, there was still the large grouping of non-Western. Um, right. So it's, um, I think it's not one thing or another, It's tr but it's trying. Um, it, is, it is one step forward in the inclusive direction though, um, because I know the others uh, on the panel are going to be more critical than I am. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to uh, give it um, some cred by saying that it's stepping in the inclusive direction. Okay, but, um, you know, we really want to hear what, uh, how you read the ad. You want me to? Yeah, yeah, go ahead, John. Go, what do you got for us, John? Well, this, you guys were going to ask us, is Western philosophy dead? And I was yeah. surprised to ask this. Yep, yep. Because uh, I, think, I think Western philosophy is doing great. <laughs> and, you know, when you look for evidence of that, the way that the, way that the department's higher is, has to be has to be up there as, as the most significant indicator. And, um, you know, we're looking at this job posting, assistant professor of philosophy, Department of Philosophy, University of Chicago. And the, the, the thing that's interesting to me is, there's a few things that's interesting to me about this post. Um, and really, really, to be honest, a few things that I find kind of insulting about it. Um, it's an AOS, and, and an a, uh, it's an AOS in the history of philosophy, and like to Peter's point, right? Peter, you you would understand this. They're hiring the history of philosophy. History of philosophy is African American philosophy. African American philosophy is in the history of philosophy. When MLK writes in the mid twentieth century, that's history. Uh, when uh, Sylvia Winter writes in the late 20th century, that's history. When Tommy Curry writes in 2018, that's history. This is a, this is a, uh, and of course, the entire non-European world, when they think, when the, when the non-European world thinks, is history. This is, uh, this is why I emailed you guys, this is, this is a job posting from the 18th century. Because when, when the non-European world thinks, 
it's a primitive thought. I mean, they don't write that in the post, but this is the historical backdrop to this idea that non-Europeans, whether it's contemporary Middle Eastern thought, whether it's contemporary uh, African-American thought, whether it's Buddhist philosophy from the fourth century BC, it's all history. Europeans are the vanguard of progress. Europeans are current. Europeans live in the present. They think in the present. And the entire non-white world is a, a relic, some, somehow, somehow behind. That non-European non -European philosophy is, is necessarily presumed to be history of philosophy is one of the, one of the really egregious transgressions of this kind of ad, kind of job posting. Uh, like, uh, I mean, Peter spent plenty of time reading Cotton Hegel on these kinds of things. For somebody like Hegel, yeah, maybe Asian people did something kind of philosophical, but it was definitely a long time ago. Um, there's no, there's no, it's not like spirit is going to move to Asia next. That's not, that's not happening. They're, that's not, that's not the, that's not what's going to be contemporary thought. Um, you can, you can point to some other things about this posting and Peter mentioned it, just that the, the, that non-European thought is it's totally homogenized, whereas the historical periods of European thought are, are so nuanced. Um, it's, it's as if, it's, if it's, just, it's as if it's all kind of, you know, everybody may not look the same, but everybody definitely kind of thinks the same. And um, <laughs> that's, that's just, I, I guess I just would say, I wish we saw this as an insult, but instead yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the insults even are so rare, they start to look like victories. You know, because at least, at least they noticed, at least they said diversity. Yeah, at least, yeah, 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 yeah. You know? they yeah, yeah. But, but just because they advertise it, that doesn't mean it's a success. Um, so I'm just, I'm just saying, if, if what it means to be recognized by these departments is to be recognized as primitive or is to be recognized as homogenous, then you really haven't, the field really hasn't, moved at all beyond the 18th century debates around what the non-European world is. And if, in fact, in fact, if anything, at least back then they debated it. Yeah. Now it's it debated. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's presupposed. It's presupposed on the website and, and everybody has to get behind this because it's quote unquote diversity. And I mean, it's interesting there, John, that you mentioned, right? So there's the issue of relegating all non-Western thought to the history of philosophy. There's the problem of uh, homogenizing all non-Western thought, but even setting up this dichotomy between ancient Greek philosophy, medieval philosophy, modern philosophy, and then non-Western philosophy is super problematic too, right? I mean, Herodotus mm -hmm. would be uh, uh, blown away to hear that people are thinking that ancient Greek philosophy can be taught without talking about Egyptian and Babylonian predecessors, right? And I mean, and 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 the same thing goes for for medieval thought and modern thought. Like the idea that we can teach medieval and modern thought without teaching thinkers of the Islamic Golden Age should be absolutely horrific to people, right? So, I mean, yep. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just, I, 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 I'm with you. I see, I see issues at every turn. And, and it's a way, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of the ways that white economic supremacy is maintained in this field. Because you have one job, you have one job for quote unquote non-Western philosophy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Western philosophy is so nuanced, you have to have your Kantian and you have to have your post-Kantian idealist and you have to have your Aristotelian and you have to have your Plato scholar and then you have to have your- Early modern scholar. You know, your early modernist. Yeah. Have to have your, yeah. you know, medievalist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, one thing, one thing that come always, I, I, I always have to point out. I mean, um, even just a subfield like the philosophy of mind. I mean, you look at New York University. Last I checked, they had seventeen. That's a one and a seven. Seventeen full-time tenured or tenure-track philosophers of mind on staff. Holy. And, when these, when the field is defined the way that Peter shows that it's defined, part of part of the part of the outcome of what Peter wrote about in his book is that there's this is a playbook to maintain economic dominance in this field. It's a, it's it, it it is a matter of who's going to get paid. So I mean, you can hire a a, a somebody that studies Confucius, and then you have the non-Western world covered, and that's that. Philosophy departments hire one person. I mean, this is this is maybe this is maybe seen as progressive that you'd have one person on staff that covers the entire history of Asia and the Middle East and maybe also Africa. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. person is your quote unquote non-Western person, and all of that pre-colonial. So that, 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 that those fields are defined as it's not. You're not going to read Ho Chi Minh in your. Uh, uh, Asian philosophy class. It's all. It's always pre-colonial. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I have a lot to add to <laughs> yeah, this yeah, because I yeah. guess. Well, because I mean, on one hand, I do. I'm like maybe I'm somewhere between these two <laughs> sort of remarks. On one hand, I think there's an a, attempt at inclusion. I'm always unclear as to whether like these attempts are genuine or not. So I don't really know what's happening. What I do think again is there's a lot of student pressure to at least show that you vaguely are interested in hiring somebody that feels like a person of color um, and see how vague that was. Like that was so vague, I could barely get it out of my mouth. And so I think, I think we see, to me, cause I'm thinking about like, when, I feel like I've been around the block. I had a few postdocs and had a couple of tenure track jobs before this one. I've been a million different places. And the first thing I see when I see this is I think, well, what's the politics of this position? These two, this point about African-American philosophy and non-European philosophy sort of got added at the end. So somebody <laughs> clearly thinks that that hiring in that area would be a good idea, but there are clearly a bunch of things that came before that and that are probably going to take precedence in hiring oh, as well. 100. Right. So to me, even the way the ad was written represents a little bit of like a read, because I was thinking this point about reading it as an image. And it, to me, like as an image, reading it as an image, there's a bit of reluctance here. There's a bit of tension mm -hmm. and conflict. I think that both comments have already sort of, of highlighted. And I think so on one hand, there's like this attempt to be inclusive, but on the other hand, there's a tension about it. And I think we mm -hmm. see that. And I think the reason I want to mention this as a person who is so, I, as you've been tokenized a million times in a million different ways, whether it's a conference and I'm like the only woman of color or the only woman of color on a panel or the only woman of color on a long list for a job. Um, like, 
you know, I was thinking about this point about whether it's insulting. John was saying like, you know, it's, we can't even get there because it's so bad in a certain, in a certain way. Um, which, you know, I, think it's, I think that might be right, but I definitely do feel a kind of like, even when you want us, look at how much reluctance there is and in what a tokenized way and what kind of work are you going to want me to do when I get there? Because trust me, again, I've been in these positions like a million times over. And then you don't, you know, they don't want you to do a lot of the kind of work that you actually want to do anyways. Um, so yeah. I think the struggle yeah. is so real. I'm so thankful on the one hand that there is a job like this. When I think about grad students who are on the market, who are working in African-American political thought, and, you know, in my case, maybe some students I'm working with on Indian political thought. Um, I'm so thankful that this job exists. But on the other hand, when I think to myself, what kind of career are they going to have, especially looking at my own career tra trajectory, I, I feel so conflicted about whether I think this is a good thing or not. Yeah, yeah. Yep, I feel it. I feel it. I feel it. <laughs> uh, and the first thing you were talking about when you when you talked about um, the African American philosophy and the non Western being at the end, it just took me right back to the image of being at the back of the bus and having that sign in between. Right. It's the first right. image I thought of in my head. Um, and then, um, secondly, um, this idea of you know putting that on the back of the bus but wanting someone that's like, because uh, they talked about how they also want someone that's diverse, right? So wanting someone that like can kind of like what we would call pass, right? They're, they're like, they're like we, and I'm not saying like can physically pass. Like I'm talking about that can like socially pass and like that will speak white, speak <laughs> Western, speak this way, that can sit in the front half of the bus and be like, I look like I fit up, like I'm doing all the things, right? I'm living the, the life that you want me to live, but actually mean to be in the back of the bus. So the whole time you're sitting there, you're trying to like straighten up your tie and sit right so then you can fit in with these people when really you deserve exactly like it says in the listing what they want you to be, which is in the back of the effing bus, right? And so it's like, I'm in this weird image now where I'm like, my job is actually to be in the back of the bus. Uh, but what y'all want me to do is fake like I deserve, like fake like I can fit in on the front of the bus. Uh, and it's like, but I can't uh, because the front of the bus is just not made for me, point blank. It's not made for me. Um, yeah, I, I'm like, I, um, that, you know, bringing up an image really grabbed me, Mina. Um, thank you, John and Peter, for all, you, for all your words. Um, this has been really great. And I'm glad that we got to end on something that was like, uh, I'm sorry, I thought this was a home run. Like, it's something that for me, I think a lot of people are reading into and reading, um, and it's hurting a lot of people. Um, and a lot of people are applying to these things and being shut out um, because they think, because it's at the end of the list, it's still a part of the list. Um, when there's such a, when there's so many hoops that you have to jump to be able to then be diverse and sit on the front of the bus. Um, and so I'm really, I, this was really awesome. Thank all three. I want to, like, me and, me and Matt both want to thank okay. all three of you for taking doggone an hour and a half out of your life and giving it to us for the free. Um, this is so awesome. You don't even know how much that means. You know, people, uh, I understand that, you know, when you're brown and black in this world, a lot of people putting a lot of things on you. Your time is valuable. Thank you for giving us your valuable time. It is, this has been great. I've really enjoyed, like, this is probably one of, this has been, like, I've had a lot of fun today. Yeah.
Thank you so much for creating this space though for us to sit together and spend this time together to talk about these things. It's like a really great, it's a really great service. And so I really appreciate both of you for doing that. Oh, we appreciate it. We appreciate it. Thank you. I had an amazing time. Oh, I, pardon me, John. I'm sorry. I cut into you. I had an amazing time. Thank you for bringing us together. It's great to, um, well, you know, we're able to see each other <clears throat> while we're doing this, uh, but to get to know you and your work. And um, I'm just uh, honored to be a part of it. Thank you. For being on. Yeah, I just would second second what Mina and Peter said. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for having the podcast. Um, thanks for all the work that you guys have to do, especially um, just in terms of reading people's work. I know that there's a lot of work that goes into this, just reading and figuring out what people are talking about and who um, who fits on a podcast together. Um, that's not that, that that just comes through reading and research. So I appreciate that time you guys put into things. Thank you. Yeah.